This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Greetings, friends, and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. This is episode number 56, entitled, What Does Son of God Mean in Mark? Part 1. As always, the Biblical Unitarian Podcast is the podcast that has its aim to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Dustin Smith. I am your host. What do the gospel writers mean when they each describe Jesus as the Son of God? What, in fact, does this title mean? Does it mean that the gospels intended for the readers to regard Jesus as the pre-existent Son of God who came to earth as a man? Does Son of God refer to being divine, that is, being Yahweh himself. Many have read the four Gospels in light of their Christian traditions and assumed that the answer to these questions is yes, that Son of God does refer to a pre-existent God who became man in the person of Jesus. But is this actually what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John mean with the title Son of God? This episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast will begin to explore how our earliest gospel, the Gospel of Mark, defines what the title Son of God means in reference to Jesus. Mark's gospel actually does quite a bit with this important title, so this will be a multi-episode exploration into what Son of God means. Mark's narrative appears to be structured around three pillars of Son of God announcements for the readers. First, at the baptism of Jesus. Second, at the transfiguration. And third, at Jesus' crucifixion. Since these crucial markers are vital to Mark's narrative structure, they are as good a place as any to start our exploration into what Son of God means in Mark. It will also be important to look at who knows within the unfolding narrative that Jesus is the Son of God, meaning who fully understands what the title indicates. So let's begin our study. Our first point today is looking at the title Son of God at Jesus' baptism. This appears at the beginning of Mark's gospel in Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately, coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit, like a dove, descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. That's Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. We can see from this passage that Jesus is the one that is aware that he is the Son of God. God in heaven is the one that speaks from heaven and announces to Jesus that he is the beloved Son. In Jesus, God is well pleased. We see that in Mark 1 verse 11. Another interesting point about this passage is that the heavens were open, but it actually uses the Greek verb schizo which is a word for a kind of ferocious and powerful tearing. It's almost as if the heavens were ripped open. It's not just a casual opening like the opening of a book. It's the heavens were just ripped open. 
And this verb, schizo, in Greek, occurs twice in Mark. Once here in Mark chapter 1 and verse 10, and also in chapter 15 in regard to the temple veil being torn. It's interesting because the second reference in Mark chapter 15 is accompanied by the centurion's confession that Jesus truly is the Son of God in the very next verse. So this seems to be a deliberate connection in Mark's narrative where in Mark chapter 1, the heavens are ripped open and Jesus is announced to be the Son of God. And at the end of Mark's gospel in Mark chapter 15, the temple veil is ripped open, followed by the announcement of Jesus being the Son of God, both giving access to God and the announcement of Jesus as the Son of God. These are very interesting points that are often overlooked in casual readings of Mark's gospel. Of course, here at the baptism of Jesus, the announcement of the sonship of Jesus is accompanied with the empowerment of the Spirit. The Spirit descends upon Jesus, and it is at this point that Jesus is empowered by God's Spirit to perform miracles and to demonstrate his royal authority as the Son of God throughout Mark's Gospel. There's no indication prior to this point that Jesus is empowered with the Spirit, according to Mark. The declaration at Jesus' baptism that Jesus is the Son echoes Psalm 2 in verse 7, a psalm celebrating the endowment of authority to the anointed king. Of course, Psalm 2 identifies the king as God's anointed. It calls him the Son of God, and it indicates there is a special relationship between Yahweh and this royal Son of God. At the baptism of Jesus, with its allusions to Psalm 2, there appears to be, at this point, the moment when Jesus is actually anointed as the King. Again, the baptism of Jesus serves in Mark's Gospel as the time when Jesus is anointed as the King of God's kingdom. This actually recalls King David, who similarly was anointed for his position as ruler prior to taking the throne himself. And Mark regularly wants his readers to understand Jesus in light of the former King David. David functions as a type of Jesus Christ. The baptism of Jesus, therefore, serves as the event that justifies Jesus as God's chosen, authorized, and spiritually empowered king. There's really nothing here at the baptism of Jesus that would indicate that he is a preexistent being or that he is identified with Yahweh himself. He appears to be one who is baptized one who is empowered with the Spirit, and most importantly, one who is distinct from God in heaven. Our second point is looking at Son of God at Jesus' transfiguration. This appears in Mark chapter 9. I'm going to start in verse 2. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. The passage goes on in verse 7, and it says, Then a cloud formed 
overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. That's Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 3 and verse 7. Here we can see that there is another announcement of Jesus' sonship, and it is authoritatively spoken by God himself. This would be the second time that God has spoken in Mark's gospel, announcing that Jesus is the Son of God. The glorification of Jesus, a person who is distinct from God, fits nicely in the context of God sharing his glory with other human figures. We've seen in some previous episodes of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast that God regularly invests his glory, privileges, prerogatives, and authority into specially assigned human beings. In particular, Adam, the primordial human being, is invested with God's glory in Psalm 8. Moses also was invested with God's glory and bore God's glory in Exodus 34. And so we can see here that Jesus being transformed into a glorious state doesn't necessarily mean that he is God. It fits in the context of God empowering human beings with his glory, just like Adam and Moses. In fact, the allusions to both Adam and Moses are quite strong in this passage, namely being empowered human beings, empowered with God's glory as one who is distinct from God, but specially chosen as God's glorified and empowered agents. The allusions to Moses are very powerful with the being on the mountain, with the glory, with the cloud coming down, and of course all of those passages and, of course, all of those references can be traced back to the book of Exodus. This event, the Transfiguration, appears to be an anticipatory vision of Jesus' coming glory. Meaning that this is not an actual event that takes place, but it seems to be a vision that anticipates the coming glory of the Messiah, of the Son of God. Matthew actually clarifies Mark's gospel by noting that it was indeed a vision. And he uses the Greek word orama in Matthew 17, verse 9, to indicate that this was indeed a vision. For Mark, all of the references to Jesus' glory are indicative of his kingly rule in the future consummated kingdom of God. One example will actually prove this particular point. In Mark chapter 8 and verse 38, Jesus says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. That's Mark 8:38, where Jesus is going to return in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. There, Jesus bears the glory of the Father. It is not his own glory, it's the glory that the Father has empowered him with. And this glory is something that Jesus has at his return. And the other references of glory also indicate Jesus' kingly and royal glory that he's going to have in that future consummated kingdom. So this indication here of Jesus appearing glorified is almost likely a reference to a vision of Jesus' future glory that was experienced by three specially chosen disciples. The point here is that the three disciples were given this reality that Jesus is the Son of God, a specially chosen and empowered 
person distinct from God, bearing God's glory and resembling previously glorified figures like Adam and Moses. Of course, this heightens the glorified aspect of the future ruler, the future king, the future son of God, to be returning and consummating the kingdom on the earth. And that aspect, it's very likely that the disciples already understood and fully grasped, uh, as we could see with the confession of Peter in the previous chapter. Our third point today is looking at Son of God at Jesus' death. There are a couple passages I want to look at here that are important. First one is at the trial of Jesus in Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 61, which reads, Again the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. That's Mark 14, verses 61 through 62. Here we can clearly see that the high priest seems to equate the terms Christ and Son of God. Again, the high priest says, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? As if Christ, being the anointed king and Son of God, are equivalent titles. This is something that any reader could clearly see back in Psalm 2, something we've already alluded to, and something that we feel that Mark is alluding to at Jesus' baptism. In other words, Son of God as a title is synonymous with the anointed king of the kingdom, namely the Christ. This is something that Jesus actually agrees with in this description. So we can see that the high priest had an understanding of Son of God, namely being the anointed king, namely being the Christ, and Jesus agrees with this assessment. Jesus actually clarifies the answer in an important way by noting his role as the Son of Man. For Jesus, Son of God and Son of Man are mutually interpretive titles, marking Jesus off as a particular type of royal Son of God the royal son of God that is also bearing the title son of man. These do not seem to be, as was thought in later Christian theology, to be two different sides, one being Jesus' divine side, son of God, and Jesus' humanity side, being son of man. No, they seem to be titles indicating the royal son of God, the kingly son of God, drawing on Psalm 2. And of course, the son of man is drawing on Daniel 7.13. Jesus here clarifying that the royal son of God is also the son of man is a point that Mark has already established at critical moments in his narrative. And it's important to see these points because it's critical to see how the Son of Man elaborates and expands what Son of God means. Peter has already confessed Jesus to be the Christ. This occurred in Mark chapter 8 and verse 29, where Jesus says, Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, You are the Christ. Mark 8:29. Jesus follows this important confession with an explanation of the destiny of the anointed king. That is, a destiny of suffering. Let's read this passage in Mark 8, 31. 
And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. That's Mark 8:31. Only two verses after Peter makes the confession of Jesus as the Christ, the anointed king of God's kingdom, Jesus clarifies what it means to be the anointed king. The anointed king is one that is going to rule after the suffering of many things, the rejection, and being killed. The next time we see this connection is at the Transfiguration. We saw this in Mark chapter 9. But in Mark chapter 9 and verse 9, the passage reads, As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. This clearly links the Transfiguration event, which is the announcement of Jesus as the Son of God on the mountain to Peter, James, and John, with Jesus' further explanation that he is the Son of Man who is going to die and he's going to rise from the dead. So again, Jesus is further elaborating the fact that the royal and kingly Son of God, that special glorified agent of the one true God, is one that is going to be rejected, killed, and raised from the dead. Jesus also says in Mark 10:45 that, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's Mark 10:45. There again, Jesus is elaborating and saying that his role is not one to be served. He's not some sort of kingly royal figure that has come in order to be served, but his role and his vocation is one to serve others, namely to give his life as a ransom for many, using the title there, Son of Man. So there we see there are three places already in Mark's Gospel to where Jesus clarifies the meaning of the royal and kingly Son of God with the further elaborating title, of the Son of Man, namely the Son of Man that is to be rejected and killed. This is extremely important in Mark's Gospel that Mark points out that Jesus as the Son of God is not simply a title of a royal figure, of an anointed figure that is going to rule in God's kingdom. The Son of God is also someone that is going to be rejected, killed, and raised from the dead. The last passage we want to look at is at the crucifixion of Jesus with the confession of Jesus as the Son of God. Mark 15, 38-39 says, And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion, who was standing right in front of him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. Mark 15, verses 38-39. The authoritative statement by the centurion of all people is that Jesus' role of Son of God coincided with his humanity rather than some form of divinity. The text flat out calls Jesus a human being, in Greek an anthropos. There is no attempt by Mark to suggest that this is some mere human nature bearing the incarnate God. Rather, Jesus is the human Son of God who died as a mortal. And God, as we know, is incapable of dying. God is immortal. God is the one who raised Jesus from the dead. 
Jesus being someone who is distinct from the immortal God. But again, as we're seeing in this passage, Jesus is the Son of God who dies as the suffering royal figure. And he dies precisely as a human being. He is the Son of God who dies. So, in conclusion, we have observed that thus far in our study, there is absolutely no indication that the title Son of God indicated that, for Mark, Jesus actually pre-existed his birth. Nor is there any indication that Jesus is Yahweh, the God of Israel. Instead, we repeatedly saw that Jesus, as Son of God, was distinct from God as the person through whom God's kingship, rule, and redemption were carried out. Son of God clearly bore the overtones of royal rule and bore the authority that the Davidic Messiah would naturally possess. However, Mark is quite clear that the Son of God is not merely a kingly title, for the royal Son of God had to first suffer and die. Jesus tried to teach this to his disciples, but they repeatedly failed to grasp this point likely due to their previous understandings of Son of God that had no traces of a suffering and dying figure. In fact, there is a purposeful irony that it is a Gentile who rightfully understands Jesus as the Son of God who died, something that none of Jesus' Jewish followers were able to comprehend at the time. In short, our study thus far into the Gospel of Mark has indicated that the title Son of God refers to the anointed ruler of the kingdom of God who suffers and dies as God's appointed human agent. If you enjoy the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, please consider supporting us. You can check out this episode's description for a PayPal link. Thank you so much for joining us today. Be sure to stay tuned and like and comment so that we can get more visibility out there in the internet. My name is Dustin Smith. Until next time, you folks take care.